Hello, and welcome to another episode of the B2B Founders Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Trainer. On today's episode, I'm joined by Vivek Kandawal, who is the co-founder and COO of media company Izudo. Vivek is a repeat guest as he was also featured on episode 20. I wanted to have Vivek back on the show to talk about and go into greater detail on he and his three co-founders rapidly grew their company beyond a million dollars and joined the 5% Club. When I had Vivek on the first time, Izuto was processing about 18 billion notifications a month. And just eight months later, they're now processing over 40 billion a month. And when you break that down, it's over a billion a day, which is just amazing. We discussed the key tactics and strategies they used as they scaled their business. We talked pricing, workflows, validating the value drivers early, the power of customer success, and many other topics, including how to divide and conquer with three other co-founders. One of my favorite quotes from the episode was, founders can scale a business, but it's not sustainable. And we'll get into the details of what he meant by that. One of the key early decisions Izoto made was on how to price the new offering, and it really paid off. You'll also hear some of the things he would have done differently, such as documenting the process and the history a little bit sooner. That's also very common with startups. They just like to wing it until they make it and then, then play catch up. But we'll get into those details as well. So enjoy this episode. And as a reminder, if you listen to this podcast, enjoy it. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening. Now, on to the intro. Welcome back. You're listening to B2B Founders, a podcast dedicated to helping founders that are selling to other businesses navigate their startups to their first million dollars in revenue and join the 5% Club, led by your host, Brett Trainer. Hey, Vivek, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Brett. Thank you so yeah. much. It's great. Uh, we get the, the 2.0 version with the B2B Founders podcast, but I believe back in episode 20, you joined us and we did a really deep dive mm -hmm. into kind of your entire journey. And as we were talking offline, what today I'd like to really focus on is how you were able to scale Izuto and you know pick your brain a little bit and go through that process. So before we get sure. there, why don't you tell us a little bit about the company you know, how big you are, you know, the number of employees, who you work with, all that good stuff. Sure. Awesome. Hi, everyone. I'm Vivek Renwal. I'm founder and COO at Izuto. Izuto is an old audience marketing platform that helps publishers and brands reduce their dependency on the likes of Google and Facebook using a range of channels of communication like push notifications, email, chat, and so on and so forth. The underlying idea is very simple. Our philosophy is uh, audience ownership is the key to succeed uh, in today's uh, digital world. Right? If you do not own your audience, you're pretty much going to be dependent on one of the world gardens, be it Google, be it Facebook, be it TikTok. And that's, what, and, uh, and that's the problem we are, we are trying to solve here at Izuto. We work with the likes of Hearst Media, we work with the likes of Tencent. We, we work with the likes of Newscope. We help their uh, news and media brands uh, reach their audience, give them push notifications, engage them, bring them back to the websites, communicate more effectively, drive loyalty, right? build readership, right? build engagement, and uh, which, which directly at some point uh, starts impacting their revenues. Yeah, so that's what we do as a business. Some of the brands we work with, as I mentioned, uh, Hearst, New York Times, uh, Hearst, Hearst uh, 
Mescorp, Tencent, and so on. Right? I specifically take care of uh, all things marketing and all things customer experience. And that's what uh, I have been focused on uh, uh, more specifically in the last two years. We're now officially a four-year-old business. Yeah. Wow. Is, that, is it really? It's been four years now. It's been four years, yes. Uh, April 11th is when we sort of you know, moved to our first official setup. Right? So yeah, it's been four years and a month or so. Ah, congratulations. So how many, how many employees you. or contractors have you guys got working for you now? I'm not even sure how many <laughs> I told you last time, but uh, now we are close to about 60 people strong. Awesome. Right? Awesome. Uh, and you guys serve more people. And you're, you're based in India, correct? But you're, you have an international yes. customer base. Yes, most of our customers are now across uh, Southeast Asia, Europe, US, of course, Canada, uh, you know, quite a few in, uh, in, uh, in Brazil, Chile, Argentina, and so on. Yeah. Okay, and we'll get back into that because I'm sure there's some challenges <laughs> supporting customers in, in different geographic regions. But yeah. So maybe first of all, let's go back. And again, people really want to do a deep dive in here. It can, can listen to the other episode. But how do you came up with the idea for this? I mean, it makes sense intuitively that you want to own your own audience, right? But you know, what was kind of the, the idea and then how did you take it from idea to actually start a company, in your case, uh, another company? I'd love for you to share with the audience. Sure. So I remember uh, this is 2015, the, the year when everybody wanted to have an app. There was an app for pretty much every single thing, you know. App stores, both on Android and iOS had blown. The world was still fighting about which is a better OS, yeah. right? And for some funny reason, every single business, every single business was focused on building apps. And it used to drive us nuts and crazy because I remember back in the day, the mobile phones we used to use, the devices that we had, had, you know, the memories was limited. The, right. the, the storage capacity was limited. Uh, I remember seeing a Google report back in the day this is 2016, early 2016, where they said that in India, every single week, 30% users delete uh, media from their devices, which is an incredible number, by the way. Yes. Right? Uh, you know, fast forward to 2020, we live in a world where you know, our phones have more storage than our laptops. Right? I mean, my phone has, I think, 64 gig on it right now. Right? amount of space I can never imagine to consume. But right. in 2015, you know, the world was going crazy with apps. Everybody was sort of you know, trying to spend money on Facebook and Google. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of VC money being pumped into, you know, into the digital ecosystem. And acquisition, acquisition, acquisition. That was all that people could say and, you know, talk about. And in this world, in this madness, because... Uh, because we were dealing with such customers who were chasing, you know, extreme targets on, on acquiring new customers, right? We used to also see the trend on their retention. We used to see, you know, how many people are actually installing the app and using the app right. or actually opening the app, you know, after X hours. And I remember, you know, this is uh, a stat that came to me from an app Annie report which was that the biggest travel app back in the day 
in our country, uh, in India was make my trip and their median app install time on the device was eight hours. It wasn't really? even fine. Wow. Yeah. And it used to beat me because not everybody in this country, you know, at least in this country is, 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 is taking flights, right? Not everybody's traveling, right? And even if I'm traveling very extensively as a business person, I'm traveling probably, you know, four times a week, right? Or, or, you know, five times a week, sorry, uh, four times a month or five times a month, right? Sure. Uh, even in those extreme cases only would people have a real utility of an app or people will really use those apps, right? If I'm flying once a month or once a quarter, right? I don't need an app for that. True. You know, my, my primary discovery channel remains Google search, right? The browser is where my journey starts of discovering new things, right? So the playing ground for a lot of brands believe that the playing ground for them had shifted to the app stores. Our premise was that the playground is going to be the browser. Interesting. Right? Okay. That's where we started from, that the browser, the first point of discovery, the first thing you open when you want to search something, that's where you need to fight. You don't need to fight somewhere else. Don't shift you know, the right. people sort of have this habit of you know, changing the post. That doesn't make sense, right? So, so yeah, that's where we started off to say, okay, if we want to solve the problem of retention and not acquisition, because acquisition is done and dusted. Retention, right, which now they say is a new acquisition, <laughs> is, right. is what we sort of, uh, you know, were focusing on uh, back in the day. And that's how our journey started at Isoto. Interesting. And I think if the stat and maybe it's changed now that every at smartphone users are only using like five to seven apps total on their device, even though they have 20 or 30 installed. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. People, you know, uh, you know it's, it's difficult to search for apps on your phone, right? I might get my answer faster through Google search as compared to, you know, finding the app, right? And then, you know, trying to sort of figure, figure my way out. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I still tend to, I may have a couple apps that I use, but if I'm looking for information, it's either I'm asking Siri, which is a search, or I just yeah. swipe down and type in my, my question and, and look for it. So, I mean, it makes sense. I guess you're absolutely right. Back in 2015, 2016, it was the arms race of apps. And, you know, it was actually smart that you were betting in the other direction that people aren't going to have 300 apps on their phone for each thing. They're still going to want it consolidated and all right. So the idea makes perfect sense. So how you and your co-founders got together one day and said, Hey, I think we can build this. Where did, you know, how did you put it into motion? Very straightforward, honestly. Right? Uh, I think that was the easiest part. Uh, we, uh, I remember uh, I had to leave for a vacation and just, and, and just that very day, Chrome had rolled out the web push notification API for the first time. And that sort of blew their minds because for the first time, a server would be able to communicate with a browser without a connection, right? In pure play technology terms, I know my, my studio sort of was, was baffled by the fact that this was even possible in the first place, right? You know, we kept fighting for about, I think, an hour until uh, <laughs> he actually saw the damn API and said, oh, sh oh my God, this is way powerful than you know, he said, you have no idea what Google has released right now, right? And 
fast forward to you know 2020, we now process close to about 40 billion notifications a month. Right. Wow. Right from four zero, 40 billion. Four zero. Yes, that's that's over a billion notifications every single day. And you know, that's just that's this that's just how the adoption has been. It was a very powerful capability that that Google just happened to, you know, roll out one fine day, right? And it literally changed course for a lot of engineers, marketeers. Yeah. And uh, so so that's what, you know, that's where we we took the concept and said that hey you know this is way powerful than what it seems like you know i think we're onto something here right we have a clear problem statement which we have been staring at for all these uh, you know for all this time this is a really powerful solution to sort of solve this problem really hard right uh, and take it to the market as well so yeah and in simplest terms for the customers in those early days that you're starting to go after the problem you were solving is they didn't have to be reliant on other networks is that you know, help me understand yeah. and help the layman understand. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think uh, our first sales pitch was you don't, you no more need an app to push a notification to your users on mobile, right? People were already seeing a massive trend in terms of uh, mobile becoming uh, larger in, in their uh, usage. People were seeing that mobile was almost uh, either closer to desktop or had already surpassed desktop, right? They knew that mobile was the future. You know that was right. <clears throat> that was definitely established. Right, uh, our pitch back in the day was, "Hey, we're going to help you solve the problem of engagement on mobile web." Right? Guess what? You're getting a ton of traffic on your mobile site, and you're doing nothing about it. And we can help you, you know, make sense of this. We can help you convert this into an audience and make you uh, engage with them and drive more conversions. Right? Uh, and back then, I remember the reaction was, "Oh yeah, sure, why not?" You know, we. We have the app thing, which is, you know, really our main focus, but, you know, there's no harm in trying it out on our website as well. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. And again, from the value prop, it's going to be obviously the engagement. People have understood, you know, for decades, the importance. Well, maybe not everybody understood the importance. I'm starting to realize how important that is. But the fact that they can engage without an app was, was probably very appealing to folks. So, so in the early days, you definitely, did you do any market research or is this one of those things that you knew that this was a problem just based on history? And then if you were going to take this into market, that the market was there. Is it one of those that it was that obvious or did you do some, <laughs> any type of research around it? Uh, I don't think we did conventional research as such, right? The, what, does not, what did not change for us is that we were already in the market. Okay. We were already having this conversation with customers. We had already validated that problem statement with them, right? Just that for the longest time, there was no solution. There was no solution to sort of talk about, right? And the moment the solution surfaced up, we knew there would be takers for this, right? So we did what we did, you know, what we could do best, which is, you know, pick up our phone and call up customers and say, hey, we have this cool piece of technology right now, right, which we have stumbled upon, right? Why don't you quickly open this link on a mobile phone and tell me what you think about this? Right? That's how we sort of you know built uh, easy you know, early, to demo. Yeah, easy to demo in you know, early validation in terms of hey, what do you think about this? Is this cool enough? Would you want to do this on your website as well? And again, we were we were hitting you know uh, point blank point blank our target. Right? We, we we were talking to brands who were spending money on advertising. We were talking to brands who had 
significant traction on their mobile site. So yes, you know, in, in some way we were already there with the market, with our with our you know potential customers, potential buyers, right? Yeah. Uh, just that you know we had we 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 stumbled upon the solution and we said, hey, what do you think? Interesting. Well, all great ideas solve a problem, and you guys were. <laughs> You know, intuitive enough to see what what Chrome and Google had done to open up that that marketplace a little bit, and so early days, I get it. You're selling into the network. The value prop's pretty straightforward. You know, they're not getting visibility into their network. How do you, was it? Did how did you know how to price it? <laughs> and has it changed over time oh since you launched it? Oh yes, oh yes. I think so. Uh, while uh, this was our second business as founders, it was our first business as SaaS as building. A software product. We'd done um, very different kind of products back uh, in our previous company, uh, but this was a lot more mainstream because this was targeting marketeers. We were earlier working with uh, with with large telecom operators, right? So, you know, you have five telecom operators in the entire country, right? So you know, like five accounts. Sure, there's only very so much targeted. to do there. Yeah, yeah. Very, very, very targeted, very, very precise conversations, right? So no marketing, no pricing, everything is custom, right? When you're talking, if you're looking at five accounts only. But in this case, this was you know, much larger than that, of course, right? So we did what everybody does, right? We started looking at uh, competition, at inspiration. Milton was a great uh, you know, leveler, obviously, in this case, because uh, Milton does the exact same thing, but on email, right? And that's where we sort of, you know, looked at, uh, you know, okay, how are these guys pricing themselves, right? We know push notifications are as impactful as emails, right? Or they should be at least, you know, as impactful as emails. We knew that emails have have a horrible open rate. We know emails don't get so much click-through rates, but we said that, okay, you know what? If you just price it like that, probably people will buy it, right? Or you know, right. people will bite into this concept, right? And you know that's where you know uh, that's how we sort of you know, came up with our first uh, first primitive uh, pricing plans. Now it makes sense. I mean, you knew the value was there. You were going to provide more value than what the email was. So it, it made at least you had a baseline, which was which was a good starting yeah. point. Interesting. Yeah. And so it made sense. So you got this product, and did you st- when you started reaching out to prospects? Was it in India first or where, what was your initial focus or just anybody that was, <laughs> you could get a hold of that you, you thought it made sense? What was the kind of the strategy around that? So I remember I had uh, a community champion within the SaaS ecosystem in India. And he has asked me this question, this exact question, right? So Vivek, who exactly are you trying to target, right? And uh, in my ignorance, I told him, Anybody who has a domain name is my target audience right now, right? And yeah, you know, and uh, as they say, if you're targeting everyone, you're not targeting anyone. Anyone, right. You know? Right. Uh, so yeah, you know, those are the first mistakes which we, you know, sort of uh, committed, specifically when it comes to targeting or marketing or sort of defining our persona, right? We knew this was, it was working very clearly for the e-commerce segment, Right, which was you know pretty hot, pretty fast sort of you know trying out new stuff. Uh, we knew there was solid value being delivered to the publishers, right? uh, uh, the mainstream media businesses. Right. right. But then you know, as early entrepreneurs, you always get distracted. 
right? Chasing so the shiny object. To, you know, yeah. Exactly, right? So you, so uh, every once in a while, you would deviate and say, hey, you know what? This guy also wants this. And this use case can be achieved, right? We can sort of make this happen, right? Let's sort of, you know, try to get them as well, right? So, so yeah, that sort of happened for the, I think, uh, for the first uh, one and a half years till we reached about $20,000 of uh, MRR. We were pretty much trying to sell to everyone, right? Who we could get hold of. Sure. Between our phone book and those people who come into the website and, you know, filing our sign-up form and our LinkedIn and our personal networks, we would just sort of, you know, try to hit everyone. Sure. Right? Um, and, until and we it, realized that, sorry, go on. No, I was just going to ask you before you went on, how many, you and a co how many, how big was the team at this point? It was just a few of you guys, right? That had started the company, were still doing everything or had you brought a couple people on at this point? So the good thing is this, right? Within the, within the first three months, we started making revenues at Isuto, right? You know, we, we, we sort of never really, you know, chased uh, any external funding. Right, we were uh, obsessed. I think so. So that's one thing which we did, which we did right in this, uh, in the, in our second venture, which is uh, chasing revenues and chasing sustainable revenues from a range of customers and not being heavily dependent on just one customer. Right. right. When you have five telecom customers, you pretty much, you know, all eggs in, you know, only those baskets. Right. If one of them flips, you know, you, you're pretty much, you know, struggling. Yeah. Yeah. But in case of software as a service, with an SMB kind of a market, you're really looking at a lot of customers, right? Uh, each of them giving you small, small, small amounts of money, but, and, and there's no heavy dependence on one of them. Right. So that sort of helped a lot, of course, right? So yeah, you know, that's how we sort of, uh, uh, I think uh, in terms of team size, <clears throat> if I'm not wrong, we're about 12 odd people, or almost six or seven engineers, Right, one designer, one person helping us with quality, because you know one one good thing we sort of uh, which we ensured was that uh, right from day zero we got really big brands coming onto the platform, which meant that we were supposed to be handling very decent scale right from day zero itself. Right, right? it's not like we mushroomed from zero to forty billion zoop overnight. Right, we sort of scaling gradually over here. Right. And we were always, uh, you know, we've always taken, uh, you know, some some really big names on our uh, on board with us. So yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And yeah, I think <laughs> you kind of lead me into my my next question. It's which is a lot of founders get stuck in the sense of, all right, we we may have some revenue. Hopefully, they've got revenue, not bringing people on without revenue. But as that's starting to grow, you know, now you've got to build. Uh, let me take even a step back. So a lot of folks are really good or at least they should be at maximizing their network, right? I can sell through my network. I've got friends and family. We've all of a sudden you've got to reach beyond into some folks that you don't know, or they don't know you. It tends yeah. to get stuck. So there's a marketing component to that. There's an outreach component, but you know, the, I think an area that I see overlooked most of the time is the operational piece. You may be able to generate more leads, but can you process and get them on boarded? So as you guys were starting to ramp up, I'd love to hear kind of what your thought process was and you know, maybe what worked right. what didn't work as you were starting yeah. to scale and bring on additional resources for those roles. Right. Great question, actually. What we did uh, you know, very early on is uh, we split forces and we split roles. My co-founder, Neil, who is also the CEO of the company, he took on the, real, he took on the role of sales. 
within the team. I took on the role of inside sales and marketing, right? And then the other founder, co-founder, took care of, uh, you know, of product. And the fourth co-founder took care of engineering, right? So we sort of split our roles very clearly, right? And uh, I sort of, I think after the fourth month, I pretty much focused on, hey, how can we close a sale remotely sitting here in our office, right? Nobody will step out, right? We, our objective is to, one, generate interest from people on the internet, get them onto our websites, let them, you know, sign up, fill a form, book a demo, right? And then engage in a conversation with them to, so as to convert them into a, into a customer, right? That's what I was focusing on. Uh, I have been focusing on, I think, since the fourth or the fifth month of the company's conception, right? Which is exactly sort of what helped us uh, build a content marketing engine. So for the longest time, I think until we hit almost, uh, I think we hit uh, close to about, uh, yeah, a million dollars in ARR, right? We were pretty much, uh, you know, we only had two channels of acquisition. One was inbound and second was our, uh, our enterprise sales efforts, which were taken care by Neil, right? So, you know, uh, we didn't sort of, uh, you know, open up too many fronts for ourselves. Right? Just, the, just these two channels sort of helped us uh, get to the, the milestone of a million dollars. Yeah. No, it makes sense. And then from a, you guys strike me as a process or workflow uh, structured company. Did you start to add processes internally to help facilitate some of this? Or when did you start to look at adding the processes take out some of the friction, right? Or streamline some of the internal operations. Right. You know, when I look back, I think we had very bad processes, but again, that's just the, the fun of the journey itself. Sure. Uh, I remember we, uh, I think somewhere close to about 15, 15, 20 or 30 odd customers is when we realized that customer support is going to be a big thing for us, right? customer experience pretty much meant either the founder calling them or somebody trying to support them through an email or a chat or a phone call, right? And that's when we sort of, you know, said, okay, we need to hire somebody who will take care of customer support and who will sort of, you know, do some amount of customer success and ensure that people are able to accomplish what they are being promised by the sales team, right? So, so that was the, you know, first rudimentary process which was sort of introduced back in the day, right? We always had very solid or, you know, very thought through process on the product and the engineering side because uh, we, had a, we had a team already set up that, that way, right? In this case, uh, this is where the customer support, success, inside sales, these were the processes which we sort of built or, you know, started investing in heavily after the 10,000 MRR ballpark because, you okay. know, pretty much... You know, we already had about 12, 13 people, right? That's a lot of people with a lot of energy in the early days to sort of just push yourself through, like, literally rocket yourself, you know, through that, uh, you know, early stages, right? So scaling with brute force with founders giving a lot of time is very easy, right? But it's not sustainable, right? Which is right. when we sort of started hiring for, you know, these functions specifically, tried to, you know, give them, some sense of their job roles and responsibilities, right? And each of, the, you know, each of these sort of became more and more difficult as you grew because 
you know, people would have overlaps, which would, which would lead to friction, right? And, uh, and I think uh, after almost, uh, once you add, you know, after I think every $25,000 of MRR, you sort of need to relook at the process all over again from scratch up, right? And sort of literally define that person's job role all over again. Because what they were doing six months back is not even needed after six months. The company needs a different thing altogether. The customers need a different thing altogether, right? Because things are moving so fast in those early days that you really don't have time to sort of, you know, let the friction get better of you. Right. No, and there's so much good things you just said in there between the founders, you know, can drive the scale, but it's not sustainable a hundred percent. And you know, the way the diff- the company looks at every 25 K and it depends on your business, but absolutely, yeah. you know, you can't have it set in stone that this is the way that we're going to do it. So, all right. So I guess now the big question, you, you, you cross those thresholds, anything that you would have done differently as you went through this journey, any big things looking back that you wish you would have done sooner or differently? I know your journey's not over, but just kind of curious. I mean, you, you seem to hit a lot of the right notes on this one, so. Yeah, no, good question. I think uh, I would sort of paraphrase this slightly differently. If we were to do this again, if you were to do this all over again, right, what I would do differently this time is uh, I would focus a lot more on, uh, on, on, on writing things down, right, on documenting our journey, Right, so that so that we can learn better together as a team, so that we can uh, you know go back to written word, look at our assumptions, look at what is it that we did, what what is it that we assumed wrong in this case, right? Look at our judgments and on what basis did we make those calls, and try to use that as a feedback loop for the next judgment, right? We've done so many of these newer mistakes in the last two or three years, right? right. Uh, and, uh, at, uh, and, you know, it becomes more difficult to introduce some of these processes when you are 60 people, right? It is way more easier to make it a part of your DNA when you are seven people, 10 people, 12 people, right? So, yeah, you know, if, uh, yeah, in the early days, that's one thing I would sort of want to add to our culture. Yeah, I think that's such great advice. And, you know, why not, why not start to break down, you know, tribal knowledge before <laughs> you get too far, oh, yes. and especially with three other co-founders, right? Uh, so you're dealing with yeah. four, you know, co-heads of it's this. It's a lot. Well. It's a lot yeah. of people. <laughs> but it obviously worked. And I think having, you know, I've got a guest coming in a couple months that's a big believer in the, you know, the co-founder, having a co-founder, one being the ops guy and the other being the visionary. And if you can get those two to work, probably the same thing you guys divided and conquered and but I do like the idea of being able to document and iterate off of it versus you know the knowledge of somebody and like to your point you get super busy and all of a sudden you're three months into something and yeah so it's a great advice all right so I think that's a, a great point to kind of transition so what's what's next for you guys I know we're in the middle of the, you know, COVID-19 pandemic at the right. moment, maybe a chance for you guys to catch your breath. So what's, what's next for you guys? Actually, COVID-19 has been keeping us uh, on our toes, right? We have been fortunate enough to be on the other side of the spectrum where our customers are facing, are, are having you know, their Black Friday moment, right? 
So, so now we deal with a lot of media brands, media houses, news and newspaper publications and so on, right? And all of these uh, businesses, publisher businesses, are currently seeing an insane spike because everybody is back in their houses, everybody's grounded, everybody's consuming more and more information on a daily basis, right? True. They're seeing a spike of the lifetime right now which means they are trying to engage more aggressively with this audience right now, right? Which means they are pushing a lot more notifications and trying to you know, you know, find more and more different channels of engaging with this audience, right? So COVID-19 really has been an, an incredible opportunity packed in a crisis for us. We yeah. now, uh, yeah. I didn't say, no, it makes sense when you, you, you talk about it because I just think about the amount of digital that people are consuming right now, you know, between, yeah. I mean, the high end Netflix and some others, but yeah, I mean, with, within the family, within the stay at home, I know our searches are up probably 20 X, yeah. you know, since we've yeah. been here yeah. just because, yeah. so it's going to be really interesting when we exit, which doesn't seem it's going to be anytime real soon and it could be more gradual, but you know, it's going to be interesting that the dynamics of the buyers and the searchers, you know, over time, I think it's never going to go back to the way it was because people or buyers are more used to digital. And, you know, I, you mean, I can still buy a car now online and, you know, here at least you can, you know, some of the auto dealers have figured out how to help you buy a car online and get it to your house. And it took a pandemic for them to figure, but are our customers going to want to go back right? I like curbside pickup, <laughs> right? I don't want to go back into Home Depot and pick these things up. I'm a little off topic from where you are, but it's going to be really, yeah. I'm fascinated to see where, where the journey is going to take us. And I, I do think yeah. some brands are going to adapt better to the new norm, you know, as we were talking before we hit record and than others. So, you know, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, uh, uh, I remember I was uh, seeing this report on Neiman Lab and it mentioned that the Atlantic and the New York Times have seen a record growth in their paid members or paid subscribers in the last uh, four weeks specifically. Interesting. Because, you know, people are, people are home, they're consuming all things digital, digital products. This is the best time on planet Earth to have a digital-only product, right? So, yeah, uh, it's a, it's fascinating. So, all right, I want to be respectful of your time, Vivek. So I, I always ask the, the one last question is, what is one thing that you would highly recommend, personal or professional, your call? Is there something that jumps out at you? On a personal front, uh, I would recommend, uh, and I've been trying this uh, over the last uh, few days since we have been ahead of the lockdown, right? Uh, Meditation has, uh, has sort of personally helped me a lot to keep my calm, to keep my sanity, to act on situations, to manage my reactions. That's been a great advantage. And I think uh, as entrepreneurs, uh, we are on a daily basis forced to encounter more situations than we would want to. Right. Uh, <laughs> and you know, having the sanity to think through stuff and not react having the mental power to absorb situations and act on it 
versus reacting to situations can be an unfair advantage. You know, no matter what climate it is, be it COVID, non-COVID, and in fact, it becomes uh, all the more critical right now because we're trying to react to situations on text, on Slack, on Zoom, right? We're trying right. to react to situations which are at times stripped of all the emotions. I'm, I'm glad that I can see you right now on a video call, but had we been doing this face-to-face -face in person in your living room, we would have had a different conversation altogether potentially. That's right? so true. But right. you know, given that our communication is, is stripped of our physical proximity, it is so much more important that we, we absorb more, we react less. Uh, and that's where uh, meditation has been really, really powerful tool uh, is this, for me is as, this, a, as an individual. Is it a yeah. daily uh, daily practice? Do you set aside time when you wake up? Is there, or is it just? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, it's a it's a daily practice. I I try to do uh, I try to practice for at least half an hour, uh, and uh, that has been helpful. Uh, the recommended time is two hours. Really? <laughs> if you if, if you've read the book. Sapiens by Yuval Harori Noah. I think that's the writer's name. Right? He actually practices two hours every single day. Wow. He meditates two hours every single day. And, and that's how critical is. That's the kind of impact uh, meditation can have on your life. And not just personal or professional, but on your life. Right? And I know for a fact that uh, the day I meditate, I have a different working day. And the day I don't meditate, I have a different working day altogether. I can see the differences oh, in the way awesome. I'm, uh, I'm seeing through things and I'm responding to stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, I need to. It's on my list. I, I, I probably do it informally, right? Just thinking about things, but I put some structure. That and yoga are the two things that I'm going to try in my year of 2020 is to be able to, to add those to my, to my list. So... Vivek, well, thank you very much. This was, you know, highly valuable, uh, very interesting. Appreciate you you sharing some time. Um, like I said, this is visit number two, so you know, maybe another eighteen months, we'll we'll stop back in and, and see what you guys are up to. Who knows? By then, you may be onto your next company. The way uh, the way it's going, but uh, you know, continued health and you know, stay safe, and we'll we'll catch up with you in the not too distant future. Sure thing, but thank you so much for having me here. Lovely conversation. Good to see you again, of course. Yes. Right. Uh, some look forward to speak again. At some point, we'll do it in the person, right? When that day comes. <laughs> sure All thing. Right. Thanks. Right. Have a good evening. Thanks, Vic. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to B2B Founders Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit brettrainer.com. That's B-R-E-T-T, -T, followed by his last name, T-R-A-I-N-O-R.com. Thanks so much for listening. Till next time.